Well, good morning. I hope um, your week has been. I hope you had a good week. Uh, I know many of many of you are uh, going through a lot right now, whether it's uh, dealing with uh, illness or uh, having family members who are not near you. Um, and I just we want you to know that our our prayers are with you. And um, yeah, I, I hope that you're 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 able to make it through uh, this pandemic. And and we're here to go through it together. So um, yeah. Today we're going to be talking about learning to see. Um, there's this meme floating around uh, social media that depicts the journey of making an impact uh, out of information. And it starts at understanding information um, and it kind of transitions to drawing connections within that information to knowing how to navigate through that information to make an impact. This, uh, this meme became more relevant to me uh, this year as so much is happening um, here in Melbourne and also around the world. Uh, a couple of months ago, I received a random phone call asking me if I'd like to take a political survey. And I've never taken a political survey before, and so I thought, oh, this would kind of be interesting. And so I opted in yes. And uh, just to give some context to this sermon, uh, we live in Moreland City Council, which is kind of like labor central. And uh, so the questions came on, and here are a couple of them. I was asked, does it concern you that Danny Andrews has provided contracts with Chinese businesses for the Belt and Road Scheme? Another question. Um, are you happy with how Danny Andrews has handled the pandemic? And the questions continued. And I've always been curious, how do they collect survey information? How do, I, how do they put this information together? And now I know. And for some reason, as I was listening to or as I was answering the questions of the survey, um, I kind of thought to myself, I don't, think this is, I don't think this is sponsored by the Labor Party. Uh, the, it struck me as kind of like a, a survey to see how many people in the heart of uh, Labor Town were um, happy or unhappy with the leadership of the Premier. And my point in bringing this up is that we're living in a time of political division. We're living in a time of social unrest and economic uncertainty. Um, and then, of course, there's COVID-19. We have all this information and all these events that are happening around us. And it becomes increasingly difficult to process the information and to know, what's the next step? How, how should I be living my life? Uh, how should I plan for the future as we live in this time of uncertainty? And, and coming from a Christian worldview, um, the question I ask, some of the questions that I ask are, what about God? What is God doing? What does God want me to do with my life? Um, what does God want in our church? I, I've been reading a book called uh, Pursuing God's Will Together, and it's, uh, it's written by Ruth Barton, and she has some great insights into shifting uh, functional teams into uh, discerning communities. And in the first chapter, she highlights what the journey of spiritual discernment uh, looks like, and she also highlights some roadblocks to uh, spiritual discernment. She describes the journey of spiritual discernment or spiritual sight as a movement from seeing God nowhere or only seeing God where we expect to see him to seeing God everywhere, especially where uh, we don't expect to see him. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, um, Paul says something quite uh, profound about discernment. He says, do not be conformed, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So God wants us to be able to sift through the uncertainty of life. And in the process of maturing in our journey with Christ, His hidden will can be known. Now, I realize that sounds counterintuitive. Um, if God wanted us to listen to him um, or follow him, he should just make it easier. And what I mean by that is just appear or God speak audibly or tell me what to do so that I don't have to guess. And when you look at the stories of the Bible, the challenges faced by God's people, it's not so much that they didn't know what to do. Uh, the challenge was that God's people were not mature enough to respond to the knowledge that was given to them. So either they didn't trust God or they just wanted to do their own thing. There are examples of God sending miracles to guide his people or prophets or sending warning or instruction. He sent angels and ultimately he sends Jesus, his son. Um, and, and the majority of the time, it just wasn't enough. And so... Throughout the course of the Bible, there seems to be this shift from God being obvious and visible to obscure and hidden. Notice what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. He says, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Oops, sorry. <laughs> that was, uh, let me get back there. I'll give you a little preview of the sermon. Um, <laughs> is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Verse 27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So, Instead of being provable, God is experiential. Uh, instead of being visible, God is discoverable. The story of Elijah gives an insight in discovering God's will. And we're just at the next slide. Uh, Elijah is instructed to meet God on Mount Horeb. And this place is called the Mountain of God. Uh, for those of you interested in some Bible trivia, uh, Mount Horeb is the lower summit of Mount Sinai. They're basically the same mountain, and oftentimes those names are interchangeable. And there are these connections between is, uh, Elijah's journey uh, to Horeb and the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. Uh, in both cases, Elijah and Israel are given food and drink, um, to sustain them on their journey. Uh, Elijah's journey lasts for 40 days. Israel wanders through the wilderness for 40 years. Um, Elijah and Israel both are called to this special mountain uh, to gain this revelation from God himself. So in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 to 13, um, the, the, the Lord commands Elijah to go to this mountain and stand in his presence. And as you read through the story, you find that there are these um, supernatural events that take place at this mountain. Um, there's this powerful wind that goes to the mountains and shatters the rocks before the Lord. But then it says, the Bible says that God is not in the wind. Um, after the wind, there's an earthquake, but God is not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake comes this fire, but God is not in the fire. And finally, it says, after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mount of the cave. Now, as you read this passage, you find that 
God is not revealed in these supernatural events. Um, God doesn't shout, but rather God is revealed in this whisper, in this still small voice. Mark Batterson says that God has this outside voice, but when he wants to be heard, he speaks in a still small voice. Not because he doesn't want to be heard, uh, but God whispers when he wants us to lean in. See, God desires intimacy. He doesn't just want us to hear his word. He wants us to know his heart. So leaning in requires this comfort with who God is, not just a willingness to know what he wants. Um, when I was interested in Jinha, uh, there would there would be moments where in these where we're in these crowded rooms, and when I wanted to um, draw close to her, and I would try and talk to her rather than talking loudly over the noise, I would squeak, I would speak quieter, and that way she would have to lean in. And for me, that was kind of like this nice way of um, eliminating some of that some of that physical distance, and uh, we'd be able to draw closer together. In Psalm 46, verse 10, um, the psalmist writes, Be still and know that I am God. David in this psalm is saying that God speaks loudly when we are quiet. And David here is encouraging the reader to step back from the chronic noise of our lives, step back from the noise of our negative self-talk, to step back from the noise of our coworkers, to step back from the noise of our family members and our friends so that we can hear the voice of God clearly. Now, there are times when God speaks through your coworkers and through your family members and friends. So don't disregard them, uh, but rather, I'm simply saying, be willing to turn down the noise of your life so that the voice of God can get clear. In John chapter 9, there's this famous story of Jesus restoring the sight of a man born in blindness. And John uses this miracle as a metaphor of the spiritual journey to give the reader insight as to what it takes to receive spiritual sight. And we're going to see in this story that there are several groups of people. Um, you've got the disciples who see the blind man. You see the neighbors who interact with the blind man as a healed person for the first time. Uh, you see spiritual leaders, another group of people who interact with this man who was born in blindness but is healed. And then finally, we're going to look at the man's parents and how they respond to this man's um, miraculous healing. Now, everyone in this story saw the same man healed, but most of them um, had difficulty recognizing and naming the work and the will of God in this particular miracle. Um, and if we see what hindered these different people from recognizing God's will, um, I believe that we can learn how we can respond to what God is, uh, what God wants to do and what he is doing in our lives. So let's look at that first hindrance that prevents people from recognizing God's work. John chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. So as he passed by, he saw a man uh, blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Notice the disciples see this blind man and make incorrect assumptions uh, based on incorrect theology and unhealthy cultural norms. Uh, everyone thinks that if bad things happen to you, then you must be bad. So the question is, whose fault is it? 
this man or his parents. And Jesus responds by correcting the disciples. He tells them the question isn't so much whose fault is it. The question is, what does God want to do in this situation and this unfortunate circumstance? So answering the who's to blame question rarely leads to a reconciliatory solution, um, especially in deeply rooted problems. And so Jesus here shifts the focus. He says, um, yeah, rather than playing the blame game, focus on what God wants to do. You know, there are different investigations going on around us today. Uh, where did the coronavirus come from? Uh, whose fault is the Victorian COVID outbreak? Um, there's just something about humanity that loves to play the blame game. And here, Jesus highlights that the solution to pain is not found in blame. The solution to pain is not found in blame. And Jesus here, it's not that he's trying to avoid dealing with the difficult, harsh, and complex realities of life. Yes, there's evil in the world. Yes, there is sin uh, with all of its tragic consequences. Yes, there are cause and effect relationships in the human, uh, in the human experience. But Jesus here engages with the heartbreak and the complexity of this blind man's situation by pointing out that this circumstance is creating a possibility for God to work. So Jesus here wants his disciples to develop discernment. He wants his disciples to see that God's will and his work get expressed through concrete expressions of love with real people. So the story continues. Um, in verses 6 and 7, Jesus heals this man by anointing his eyes with mud and commanding him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And what we're going to see is how the neighbors respond to this miracle. So in verses 8 and 9, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. When you read this passage, you see the neighbors talking to themselves. Uh, they're talking themselves out of the possibility that this is the same man who was born blind. And after years of years of walking by this blind man, it just wasn't in the realm of possibility that God had changed the circumstance uh, of this man's life. So this brings us to the second hindrance uh, to discerning God's will. The neighbors were unwilling to be open to change. The neighbors were unwilling to be open to change. They only see what they already see, expect to see, or even desire to see. Uh, they get more stuck when there are others who share the same paradigm and they just they can't see past their norm. You and I are stuck in this pan uh, pandemic, and I'm sure your life is different now than it was one year ago. I mean, I find myself reminiscing about stage three lockdown. R remember how good that was? Uh, schools were open. Childcare was open. You could travel more than five kilometers outside of your house. Th those are the good old days, right? And my point in bringing this up is that our lives have changed, and they will be changed forever. So what do we do about it? In John 9, Jesus is trying to get the people to be open to a new thing. His healing power changed the circumstances of this blind man's life, and the implications of that change sent waves in the community, and they just were so unsettled about it. 
I want to share some context to how blindness was perceived in Jesus' day, and that will provide some understanding as to how the people respond to this man's healing. In Leviticus chapter 21, verse 18, the Bible says, No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. And here um, God is instructing Moses around uh, who is allowed in the temple. Now that may sound mean, but Ray McAllister, um, he, he wrote a 346-page dissertation on the theology of blindness in the Hebrew scriptures. As just that exercise just boggles my mind. But um, Ray McAllister states that blindness was seen as an undesirable deviation from God's original design and creation. So basically, God does not want to be uh, associated with blindness in that he's saying this does not come from me. And so the temple represents what God is about. And God communicates, yeah, this illness is not from me. And this explains why if anyone has illness in the camp of Israel, they're not allowed in the temple. They have to wait till they are healed, signifying that they represent all that is holy. And holiness and sin, or the results of sin, are just not compatible, um, especially in Old Testament scripture. So Leviticus 19 verses 14 and 15 uh, God then instructs the Israelites on how they should treat the blind. Notice he says, Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. In other words, how the Israelites treated the blind uh, would reflect on how well they understood holiness and righteousness. Um, it, it, it informed how well the Israelites treated those who were not well. Uh, excuse me. How well the Israelites treated those who were not uh, in good health would reveal if they understood justice. So, in light of this, we looked at we look at how the neighbors respond to the healing of this blind man. They now had to let him into the temple for worship. Uh, they, they now had to uh, get, provide this man work. And so according to Old Testament scripture, it is the responsibility of those who are well off to take care of those who are not well off. And so they now had this duty and this responsibility to give this man the life that he deserved. This man was now an eligible bachelor. Um, and all these changes and all these implications to this change, the community just were not ready for it. And so instead of celebrating with this man, they take him to the Pharisees to ask, what should we do here? In John chapter 9, verses 13 to 18, we read the story of how the Pharisees respond um, to this man's healing. And as you're just reading through those passages, I want to highlight a few verses. Um, and you'll find that the Pharisees also don't like that this man was healed, but for different reasons. If you look at verse 18, they don't even want to accept that the man was blind. If you look at verse 16, the Pharisees attack the character of Jesus, and they want to avoid dealing with who Jesus was. Because if he actually performed a miracle, it would then force the religious leaders to legitimize the authority and power of Christ. Notice, not a single person in this group asks the question, um, or not asks the question, not a single person in this group is excited for this man. No one is curious about what it's like for this man to see for the first time. 
And instead, they fight to preserve their comfort. They fight to preserve their self-interests. They don't want to see a new thing that God wanted to do in their lives. You and I are in this time of change. And what I want to challenge us with is to be willing to discern God's will, to be willing to ask the question, God, what do you want to do in my life? To discern and to ask God, God, what new thing do you want me to be open to? We've looked at how the disciples responded to the blind man. We've looked at how the community responded to the blind man. Now let's look at how the blind man's parents responded to his healing. So from verses 18 to 22. As you read through that passage, I'm just going to highlight a few things. The parents knew that their son was healed by the miracle of Jesus. They knew what had happened, but they're afraid of getting thrown out of the synagogue. They're unable to overcome the fear of how they would be perceived in their community. See, the parents were unwilling to acknowledge what they knew Jesus had done because they didn't want to lose their social standing. They were unfamiliar with the knowledge, oh, they were unfamiliar with what acknowledging Christ in that environment would look like. What does it mean to be willing to confess Christ, his work, his will, his character in, envi- in environments and in relationships that are not pro-Jesus? Now, I acknowledge that it's very possible to be obnoxious with our faith. Uh, there are plenty of moments when people are not in the mood to have uh, conversations about God and being overly proactive and persistent about sharing our faith um, without having that relationship or without the other party understanding us can lead to lots of awkward moments and it, it can be quite detrimental. But there are also moments when God's work, His will, and His word uh, will pique the interests of other people um, And similar to the story, when people who normally do not care about Jesus, they will care and they'll ask questions about who Jesus is and why he matters. You know, some of your friends and family will know that you're a part of a church, a part of a church community and they will approach you and ask you questions um, about your faith. I can't think of anyone that I have regular interaction with that doesn't know that I'm a pastor because in small talk, one of the first questions is always, so what kind of work do you do? And inevitably I'll tell them, I'm a, well, I first tell them I'm a minister and that always confuses people. So I've been trying to change my vocabulary um, to uh, I'm a pastor. And then of course I have to explain what that is. But um, what I'm, what I'm saying is that because people around me know that I work for the church and that um, my life is dedicated to a specific kind of work, um, I'm finding that the most, I'm finding that I have incredibly productive conversations, especially when God first moves in the life of the person. Something happens and then they come to me and ask, hey, tell me about God or uh, tell me about what you think about the situation. This story speaks to those moments when you are questioned about your belief in God. How should you respond? And if I were to even broaden this principle, um, this story also speaks to those moments when we're just simply called to do the right thing. Uh, These decisions don't have to be overtly righteous. Um, It could be a moment when you as an employee or as a family member or friend are simply called to stand up to do what's right. 
The parents of this blind man said, we don't know who healed our son. And the sad part of this story is that they would continue to not know who healed their son. Richard Rohr says something profound. He says, most people don't see things as they are. Rather, they see things as they are. We're all faced with moments that require us to rise to the occasion. And the promise here is that discernment and wisdom come as a result of responding to the Spirit of God. The more we step out of our comfort for the sake of Christ, the more we will know Him. There are two passages that I want to read to you. Uh, The first passage will be more uh, negative reinforcement. Uh, focused. And as I read this, it's not so much to guilt trip you, but because the passage reveals what God values um, when it comes to sacrifice. The second passage is more uh, positive reinforcement uh, because we actually do have much to gain uh, as we make those sacrifices. So here's the first passage, Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation— The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So Jesus asks this one important question. Is the gain of this world more valuable than your life? Here's the second passage. Paul approaches sacrifice from a different angle. He says here in verse 7, or Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of uh, worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul comes from this place of affluence, wealth, and influence, and he says all of these things pale in comparison to the knowledge and relationship with Christ that I have. Paul's relationship with Jesus is far more valuable than anything that he had given up. In my own life, when I think about when I first became a Christian, um, I made this really um, extreme decision to abandon everything and everyone that felt like a barrier between myself and God. And to be honest, I think this was the incorrect approach in that I heard a lot of people that really cared about me. I wish I would have invited them on the journey with me. Uh, I wish I would have told my friends, look, I I, I genuinely care about you, but there are some changes that I want to make in my life that are going to shift the way that we spend time together. Um, and, and if, if I had kind of been a bit more thoughtful, I would have just kind of said, look, let's, let's spend time doing different things. And I look forward to making new memories with you doing different activities. Um, Over the years, though, I've been able to get back in touch with many of the people, uh, many of those people. And to be honest, our relationship is different. Um, 
But me taking a stand for Christ has opened up different opportunities for ministry and, and to minister to them specifically. Um, my friends often ask me about my work. They ask me about controversial topics, which gives me a chance to provide a more balanced view to the different extreme views that uh, are within Christianity. Um, one of my friends who I've known since the second grade asked me to pray for him uh, during a very difficult time in his life um, just a little while ago. And what I've learned is that if I want to draw people to Christ, I have to be anchored in him. And when I'm willing to make sacrifices for Christ's sake, the experience and knowledge of Christ has the power to draw people to him. So this brings us to the blind man. He experienced firsthand what the work of God was. He experienced healing from blindness on multiple levels. Healing of his physical sight, which happened immediately, and healing of his spiritual sight, which happened gradually. When you look at the story or the journey of the blind man, um, when you go through John chapter 9, starting from verse 11, the blind man calls Jesus a man. And then in verse 17, he calls Jesus a prophet. When you look at verse 13, he says, Jesus, you come from God. And in verse 35, when Jesus calls himself the son of man, the man then confesses his faith and worships Christ. Uh, I love that this is a journey and it doesn't happen immediately because um, it just kind of communicates that God is patient and we too can be patient with ourselves and with others as we are all on this journey together. Jesus giving this man the ability to see physically and spiritually changed his life. When we're willing to ask the question, God, what do you want? When we're open to God creating change in our lives, when we're willing to let go of how people perceive us and we're, when we're willing to make sacrifices for the sake of Christ, we'll be able to discern God's will more clearly. So my question for you today is, what does God want you to see today? What does God want in your life? I encourage you to take time to listen and wait. There's no need to rush for an outcome. Over the past few weeks, I've been praying, God, what do you want me to see? What do you want in my life? And I'm starting to learn things about my own motivations. Uh, I'm gaining perspective on some of the decisions that I've been making. Um, praying this prayer has made me realize my life is passing by and I'm sort of missing it. Um, I watched this Casey Neistat video uh, a little bit ago, and um, he talks about how his son grew up so fast, and before he knew it, um, he felt this distance between him and his teenager son. And it made me reflect on my own relationship with my boys. Um, I work during the day and sometimes in the evenings. Um, and um, yeah, like the boys go to childcare and school and I see them for brief moments throughout the day. And basically I have Saturday afternoons and Sundays uh, to spend time with my kids. And of course this pandemic has changed a lot, but I've been asking the question, what should our lives look like post-COVID-19? Uh, what would happen if I took each boy um, out a few times on a Monday during the term uh, just to share an experience or to make a memory? You know, I have six years left before Micah becomes a teenager. It's kind of like this scary thought for me. Like, 
anyway, <laughs> the thought of Micah, Micah and Joshua being teenagers is anyway, the likelihood of both of them wanting to spend time with me is going to dramatically decrease. And basically, I've just kind of like been reassessing how should I how should I spend the limited amount of time that I have with my family? And just I just feel like God is um yeah, wanting our family to be more of a family. My prayer for you today is that as you seek God and His will for your life, that you will be directed by His Spirit. May you gain wisdom, submission, grace, and of course, discernment. I hope you can experience the difference between sight and insight. I hope that you can experience the difference between happiness and joy. I hope that you can experience the difference between fear and faith. May God bless you as you seek God. Would you join me in prayer as we finish? Father God, we come before you today. And Father, this pandemic presents us with challenge, with change, with new things that we have to deal with. And Father, in this circumstance, we need fresh insight and revelation from you. And so, Father, I pray for our church and for the people who are uh, watching this that you would reveal yourself that you would tug on our heartstrings, that you would uh, draw us away from the busyness of life, that as we spend those thoughtful moments of you in the quietness, that you your voice would become clear. Father, we also pray that you would bring deliverance to those who are going through um, health issues. Uh, I pray that you would be with those who have lost loved ones, uh, I pray for those uh, who are so busy with work that you would give them uh, strength and, and wisdom and guidance in, in, in their professional careers. Father, we just want to pray that you would um, be our God, that you would speak to our hearts. So we thank you for hearing us. We pray this in your name. Amen. <laughs>